Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast and your fix of all things SAS from me, Harry Stebbings, found on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, and from the main man in SAS, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. However, for the show today, and my word, do we have a special guest for you today. So joining me in the hot seat today, we have a legend of the enterprise SAS industry, Peter Gassner. Now, Peter is the founder and CEO at Viva Systems, the industry cloud for life science systems. With just $4 million in capital raised, Peter has taken Viva to almost $500 million in ARR and a prominent force in the rising tide of enterprise SaaS. As for Peter, prior to Viva, he was a senior vice president of technology at Salesforce, where he experienced the successful IPO of the company and their rise into the most successful SaaS platform in the industry. Before Salesforce, Peter was with PeopleSoft for nine years, where he led a team of 450 professionals to support PeopleSoft's technology platform. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro today to Peter, without which the episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast that's algolia.com forward slash SASTA but enough from me so without further ado I'm delighted to welcome Peter Gassner founder and CEO at Viva Systems good that's perfect okay I think we're warmed up Peter, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, and a huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for making the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. Thanks very much, Harry. Glad to be on here. I'd love to get started today with a bit about you and how you made your way to found Viva and the aha moment for you surrounding that. In the beginning, I always liked to play with puzzles, so I'm a mathematical guy. I like to play things inside my mind, and then I studied computer science, which is a great uh, profession for somebody like that, and I'm also an entrepreneur started very early, you know, selling golf balls on the golf course. So I guess with those two things, it was sort of predestined that I was going to run a a software company. But um, I did start my career at IBM, got my background in the the mainframe days. Then I went to PeopleSoft, did the client server things and ran that technology group. And then I really saw this potential of the cloud early 2000, went to salesforce.com when it was a couple hundred people, ran that platform for a while, and then decided to start Viva. And that was in 2000. 2007 because I wanted to do something specific to an industry because I thought that would be the next wave of cloud stuff. So that's how Viva got started. Can, can I ask you, in the original days with the founding of Viva, often it's kind of SaaS folklore that it wasn't intended just for the original industries that you focus on now and it was intended to be much more broad. Is that folklore true? Well, my goal when starting Viva was to avoid going out of business. So that was the goal. <laughs> and, uh, we, we, because most startups do go out of business. A lot of people forget that. Those are the odds. And and I'm a very rational person. I knew those were the odds. So I knew, hey, we're going to start on this one area, this one application, making a life sciences specific CRM system. And if we could get that going, all good things in the future would be possible. And if we couldn't, no good things would be possible. So we only had a quarterly plan when we started the company for the first two years. There was no plan beyond 90 days, very strictly, no plan beyond 90 
90 days. Why is that? So you can be laser focused on achieving the, the revenue required to stay alive. Right. It's focus. I always use this term, focus pays off. If you remove distractions, remove distractions, remove distractions, we might not survive unless we do these things in 90 days. It has a way of focusing you mm-hmm. and you perform better with focus. Can I ask, in terms of distractions, how do you look to continue to remove distractions as efficiently as you do with the incredible scaling that you've seen with Viva? Use that term still. Focus pays off and you've got to know who in the company is focusing on what things and not everybody can focus on all things. And if you have something important and you don't have high capacity people really fully focusing on it, you're fooling yourselves into thinking that, hey, maybe we can do something important in our part time. So you don't want to take on more things than you have high capacity people to take on because you're fooling yourself. I always tell people, Viva doesn't get to be great because we start with a V and our color is orange. That's not it. It's because we put good people focused on the right problems. But I do want to go back to the earlier days because I I heard that you were slightly reluctant to be CEO in the beginning. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued as to why that was and what the catalyst was for your change and kind of successful adoption of the role. Yeah, I didn't want to be CEO in the beginning because I'm a product person, software engineer, very creative, you know, just a puzzle solver. That's what I am. I had in my mind that the CEO role wasn't creative. It was involved too much with fundraising and things like that. And I didn't think that would be my greatest contribution to society. I saw myself more as an inventor and a product leader. But I became CEO because uh, funding fell into my lap. And I thought, well, I can be sort of like, I can be the CEO, but it's kind of like being the product person in the beginning. And if the company survives, we'll find a CEO and I'll be the product person. And if the company didn't survive, well, yeah, no use worrying about it. And then the unexpected happened that we didn't uh, go out of business. That was the first unexpected thing. And then the other one is I like being a CEO and I was relatively good at it. And I think the reason why I ended up liking it is because it's complex. It's a very challenging puzzle. And I didn't appreciate that before. And I also had a worry that the CEO, they say it's a lonely job. And I thought I wouldn't like that. But I found, hey, that's okay. I can deal with that. I, I love the challenge. I love the complexity. You, you mentioned there about it being a puzzle. And before, from my research, I, I heard you say that being CEO is a puzzle between people and product. I'm intrigued. What do you mean by this puzzle? And, and how does it affect your operating as a CEO? Well, the, the puzzle is you're trying to figure out which products to make, which markets to address. So I always say we want to address clear and correct target markets clear you can know if you write it down you will know is it clear what i'm trying to make and who i'm trying to sell it to correct means that you're making the correct thing that you won't know until you get into it and because you can't predict the future but you you can know if it's clear if it's not clear don't do it and you'll find out later if it's correct and you need to be okay with that that you'll find out later and then the puzzle part is if you have a clear market what team of people do you put on that who plays midfield who plays forward who's your goalkeeper and do they fit together and do they not? And that's a very complex puzzle. It's like being the manager of a football team. It's complex and the good manager will do it better than the than the novice. Can I ask, how do you evaluate, the, you said about markets there, how do you evaluate the attractiveness of a market? Is it accessibility? Is it ACVs? Is it pure TAM? What is it that makes you feel a market's worth expanding into? And are smaller adjacent markets ever attractive? Well, the market I always view as 
is, hey, what price do you think you can get for something? And how many people do you think you can sell it for? And do you have in your arsenal of players, your arsenal of people, anything that could set you apart? Any special skills or knowledge that could set you apart from your competitors? I also look to go after markets that most people think are not good because that's the only only chance you have to be successful. You have to be first into a market. So that's the kind of way I look at markets. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's ever a time when uh, expanding the product suite is too much? I mean, when do you know when to add a material new product line? Uh, and is there a certain limit that an enterprise company can successfully build, sell, and market, do you think? Picking your next markets is very important. Many people fall into the trap of they start in a certain size market and then they concentrate on just add-ons to that market that are actually less than their original market. So I think it's good to have the discipline to say, when I'm going into a new market, gosh, it should be potentially bigger than my first one. When Amazon went into web services, that's not an add-on to e-commerce. You know, they really stretch themselves. And that's frightening, but that's, that's the only way to do it. Why start out and do something big and follow that up with something small? Your second act should be bigger than your first, and you just go from there. Can I be abrasive? Does that kind of expansion into a second, potentially larger market, and obviously in many cases much more challenging than a smaller add-on market where there might be a similar alignment in terms of technology and team? Is that not a contradictory to the theory of focus always pays off? It could be, unless you, if you're going after that new market, those are not the same people going after your first market. Focus has to do with an individual. So you need more people, you need more highly qualified people, which becomes your rate limiter overall. For any well-run company, that will be your natural rate limiter of how far and how fast you can expand. It's your people. In some industries, it, it might be your capital capital. But most of the time in the tech industry, I, I do think it's your people. You, you said about capital there, and you also said about it in terms of fundraising within kind of your wariness of being CEO. One thing you're often famed for is, is your approach to capital efficiency. So I'd love to talk about this and the reasons behind your mindset towards this very stringent focus on capital efficiency. Well, in retrospect, it, it does look like we had a focus on capital efficiency. We, we only used $3 million. But in reality, that wasn't our focus. It was just a natural focus to build a business that has good top-line growth and bottom-line growth. And I think the capital efficiency flowed out of there, although maybe I was so adverse to the capital-raising process that I just didn't want to do it again. So I worked worked harder to bring in that revenue. But really, no, Harry, I think that's making light of the subject. I always have run businesses since a very young age, and I always had this innate sense that you should take in more money than you're spending. And it just seemed like the natural way to operate. You need to be okay following your own drummer, right? And that was my drummer. That wasn't the advice I got from others, but that was uh, that was my own music, and I just followed it. I love that. Um, no, that's a brilliant quote. Uh, but we recently had Eric at Zoom on the show, and I, I know you know Eric, obviously, on the board of Zoom, and, and he said about the importance of spending more and burning less. So within kind of that theme, kind of the theme of capital efficiency, I'm intrigued. How do you evaluate then uh, the approach to sustainable growth? I know Eric places a lot of emphasis on it. How do you evaluate that? Sustainable growth at the end of the day you have to be producing good whole products. Whole products mean the software, the technology, the support, the services around that, the imaging and the branding of your company. So if you do that, if you attack a clear market, 
that ends up being correct and you concentrate on providing value, just to keep on improving your whole product, the economics will take care of themselves as long as you have the courage to price your product at what it's worth. And that's important. You have to decide the product you make and price it for what it's worth. I always tell people, hey, if you have the apples and you're going to sell the apples, it's your responsibility to set the price of the apples. And then people may want to buy the apples or not, but that's not your, it's nothing to do with you, right? You have the apples, you set the price of the apples at the right price. So then you can afford to keep on making good quality apples. And if you sell them too low, you won't be able to provide those apples because you can't put the capital into it. So make a great product and have the courage to set the price. Can I ask, as a product guy, and as you said, they're kind of a puzzle fixer, how did you approach pricing in the early days? And have you seen a development in your psyche towards the pricing mechanisms and optimizing them? Pricing, I believe, is interesting. You have to have an idea of of what the price is, both how you will price it. Will you sell it by the cubic meter or will you sell it by the kilogram, right? Or will you sell it by the user, however you will sell it? So you have to make some estimate there and you have to try things out and you have to see if the market wants to buy things that way in those units of measures by the user or by the whatever it is. And then you have to experiment a little bit. You have to have an idea what what you think is the right price for your product and you have to experiment a, a bit until you get uh, you find what you feel is right because you'll, you'll have a notion of what it is, but you won't really know until your product starts maturing. How good is my product? How valuable is it? How much can it produce for my customers? So you have to be incremental in your pricing and not be obstinate. You have to have an idea, but not be obstinate. And your your pricing will settle down when your product settles down. How long do you think that takes to, to have those kind of accessible data sets to, to make the decision on pricing and to, to start kind of either iterating or staying the same? I think that may depend on the type of product you have in the enterprise software area. I guess, oh, I would say that's probably from two to four years or so. It's not a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. No, I agree. Uh, but I'd love to dive into a quick fire round uh, called Peter's 60 Second Saster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds per one how does that sound i've never done that before but that sounds good this will be fun uh what is adjacent possible and how do you use it it's impossible to me means talking to people that are different than me but somehow related and just getting some random idea and it means taking time out of my day for just unstructured thoughts that might be useful sometime next week next year or next decade what's the grocery store rule and how does it affect your thinking grocery store rule when picking somebody that to be on your board of directors pick somebody that if you see them in a grocery store and they don't see you and they're about to leave the grocery store you will chase them down just so you can talk to them because you love talking to them absolutely i'm not sure many founders have quite achieved the grocery store rule <laughs> um but but absolutely uh, what about your favorite SaaS reading material what are your favorites when they come in you know i don't really i'm very thoughtful about my reading i pick what i want to learn and i go do it i don't manage by the input boxer or the news i um what are you loving right now i'm reading a book called leading by alex ferguson who is the you know in manchester united and it's just 
I'm learning a different way that different people lead. He was obviously a coach of a manager of a football team. And I, I think there might be something adjacent there for technology leader, leadership. What's been the most challenging element of running Viva and the Viva journey? Most challenging? Oh, it's just execution, right? Just to keep going, just to push yourself as hard as you can. It's like running a marathon. What's the most challenging thing of running a marathon? It's actually running that marathon. I, I actually know I'm running one. I ran one yesterday. So I'm fully aware of how hard it is to get through the wall. But and then let's finish the quick fire on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with Viva? In general, I'm always looking forward. I don't really look past. But one thing I would do differently, I would focus very early on how can I improve myself? And if I realized that the best thing I could do for for Viva was to improve myself, maybe I would have focused earlier on improving myself. And then moving out of the quickfire, I do want to discuss one more element. And it's, so don't worry, it's not 60 seconds, but we did discuss the expansion of the product line earlier. And with that in mind, you, you naturally have to sell that line and, and have customers to pay for it. And you have many customers over 1 million per year. So talk to me about these seven-figure deals and, and what's different about them. Well, it takes a team, right, to, to achieve these seven-figure deals. It takes a, a team. You need a salesperson, yes, but that salesperson, again, is more like the manager of the football team. They have to coordinate everything. You need a whole team. And in this case, for these seven-figure deals, you need a product that will really hold up and deliver that value. Product meaning software, the services, the support, etc. But you also need relationships. In enterprise software, you need relationships. So you need the whole product, you need relationships. For relationships, I look to advice or inspiration from companies like Accenture or McKinsey or Morgan Stanley because those types of businesses are really expert at relationships more so than software companies traditionally have. And I think especially with what Viva is doing or under other industry-specific offerings, we're moving the relationship side of technology to a whole different level. It's a relationship that's very important to the CEO of our customers, and that's a whole different level. So we look to the McKinsey type, the Accenture type, the banking type relationships and see what we can learn. Can I ask, how do you think about building relationships and kind of apply it to the wider software startup space today? And and what you you've learned from observing the McKinsey's and the, the bankers of the world and their abilities in relationship building and how you think we should be doing it. It's to be organized to, to realize first off that there is value in relationships for certain types of products, products like Viva, which are complex, which are seven figure type things. That's the very first step to realize that there is value in relationships. And I think that comes very natural to somebody from an investment banking type business, but it comes very unnatural to somebody that is used to making software. We think the value, how could there be a value in that relationship? How how could that be quantified? It's just the first step is to realize it is. It is very concrete. It does have value. And that's something that, uh, again, the McKinsey's, Accenture's, Morgan Stanley's, et cetera, they know that. And somehow software people in general think that it's ambiguous and doesn't have value. So once you cross that mental bridge that it does have value, I think everything else falls in place. You know that, well, if it has value, somebody has to be assigned to develop that relationship. And I have to assess 
where am I at in that relationship? And I have to continue to work for that relationship. It all starts with realizing that it has concrete value. Can I ask, can you start your, your career and your company in these seven-figure deals? Or is it something that you have to scale up to from five to six to seven figures? Is it possible to start in the upper echelons of ACVs? It's possible to start with that goal and work incrementally to that goal. That's very possible to know that that is where you're going and design your product around it, to design your company around it. But you will always need to work your way up there. If you, you, you have to get good at the smaller things first. I don't see a potential to jump right to the largest. No, absolutely. I agree. Final question. And it's on the hiring process for those reps. And can you hire six figure reps into a seven figure deal company? And what do you think makes those seven figure deal reps? so special. I do think you have to pay attention to background when hiring the reps, when hiring the seven-figure reps, but um, it's not it's not required. I would say you need somebody who understands the value of relationships and who understands complexity and in general needs just a certain amount of years of life experience of how to manage that complexity. So this is a type of thing. You don't get to be a great musician the first time you pick up a guitar. It needs 10,000 hours of work at it. I think for the true enterprise reps, they have to be they have to have been practicing their craft for a while. And then I always look at have they had experience selling some type of a complex solution, which is different than a simple solution, because they have to be able to not all people can manage that complexity, keep that complexity in their head, and you need people who can do that. Absolutely. But Peter, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As I said, I've heard such wonderful things from Jason. So it was so fantastic to have you on and hear your incredible journey with Viva. Thanks very much, Harry. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk with you. Such an incredible guest to have on the show and so fantastic to hear the incredible trajectory of Viva System. So a huge thank you to Peter for that and a big hand to Jason Lemkin for making the introduction today without which the episode could not have happened. But I do also want to say you can follow us on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs or you can follow the godfather of SaaS, the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. We'd both love to see you on both respective platforms. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate Lightning fast typo tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.